if you can get a more efficient way to make delicious meat, you free up all the land and resources to achieve other things. And that enables you to come up with better systems throughout, there's better solutions throughout the rest of the food system. There are almost no technologies that are key to human life that have not significantly changed since the Stone Age. We see ourselves as being a technology company learning how to make food more efficiently from the raw materials that farmers produce. How do we make something that has the same excitement of eating, of, of cooking and eating, as you get from the cow-derived version? So the question we're asking really is, can we come up with a better way to make delicious foods without using that technology? Ryan Muncy is probably the smartest guy I know. Trust me, Muncy is the nutrition guy. Ryan Muncy's out there trying to make the world better for all of us. The Optimal Performance Podcast is bold, edgy, creative, entertaining, and epic. Ryan Muncy is my go-to guy. Ryan Muncy is the first guy I call. He's making people's lives better. Ryan Muncy's an innovator. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP, as you know, is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, keep it right here, listening to the OPP, or go to naturalstacks.com. All right, so I want to welcome you to a really cool episode, uh, I think, uh, hope, of the Optimal Performance Podcast. So there have been a lot of press lately about uh, a company called Impossible Foods and their uh, lab-grown meat or pseudo-burger, fake meat, faux burger, whatever you want to call it. Um, I reached out to them and am very grateful for uh, Chris Davis coming on the show. Chris is the Director of Research and Development at Impossible Foods. Um, so in this intro, I really want to reiterate, you know, Chris, thank you for coming on the show. Rosie, thank you for helping set it up. Um, I, I'm grateful for you guys being open to come on the show, especially knowing um, our background in previous episodes, you know, that we don't exactly favor GMOs. Um, you know, my allegiance is to you, the listener. Um, so I want to reiterate, you know, I think that this is an important discussion for all of us to have. We know that the factory farming model is broken. We know that we need to affect change on a global level. And Chris made a great comment in this episode, you know, that e even he and they at Impossible Foods see Impossible Meats as part of not necessarily the whole or the entire solution. Uh, you know, the product that they're making, they see it as, you know, one way that people can, you know, choose if it's right for them to be a part of, you know, progress and moving forward. I also love that we agree uh, wholeheartedly on the need to reduce food waste. Uh, you'll hear uh, some numbers in the podcast. I will link in the show notes to uh, some of the data on uh, exact amounts of food waste. There's actually a really funny uh, and great segment from the John Oliver show. I will put that video on the show notes as well for you guys. Uh, I think now's as good a time as any to remind you, go to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to see the show notes, links, resources, video version of this podcast on naturalstacks.com. Uh, at the top of the website, just go to articles and you'll be able to find this blog post for this podcast there. Uh, now, all that being said, you know, again, my allegiance is to you, the listener, the OPP uh, folks. And, you know, I, I think Chris and I sort of disagree on the uh, purest pragmatist spectrum uh, when it comes to uh, the contents and the production of impossible meats, as well as, you know, sort of the stewardship of the land and the leadership role in this conversation. Um, you'll hear some of that in the show. And again, I, I Chris, I thank you for coming on the show. Um, and I think it remains to be seen how he and impossible foods choose to handle that going forward. Uh, for me personally, if you guys, the listener are looking to me, um, for a recommendation, you know, this product is not something that I'm going to eat. Uh, I want to make that clear that it's not something that I'm recommending for your diet. If it's something that you want to be a part of and want to incorporate in your diet, then by all means, go for it. I think it's great that Chris and, and Impossible Foods are looking into a potential solution and, and trying to be part of the conversation, be part of the 
solution going forward. Um, but as you'll hear in my line of questioning, I, I think that they are, um, uh, I think there are still some areas where, you know, there's work to be done and, um, I'd like to, you know, challenge them to, to try to shore that up and, um, you know, contribute fully and, and not just in a, in terms of producing a product that, um, generates revenue and, and generates profit, um, specifically in terms of, um, the factory farming that, that is still being done for the, the conventional commodity production of their ingredients, as well as, uh, you know, in the, in the beginning of the conversation, we talk about the need to get meat into parts of the world that don't have cold transportation. Uh, but then once we start talking about their product, we find out that it is uh, a raw meat that requires cold transportation and their focus is on uh, delivering it to, you know, places in the U S where, you know, there's, uh, the ability to be compensated for that as opposed to, uh, you know, trying to make a product that can be distributed and, um, uh, gotten into places that, you know, have issues with meat consumption now. Um, so I'll let you guys listen to that. Um, love to hear your feedback on this one. And, um, you know, as always go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. If we read your review on the show, we will hook you up with free natural stacks products. I want to read a review right now from T Y S I P Tysip. Uh, this was on iTunes favorite optimizer information. My favorite go-to podcast. Uh, that means a lot. Thank you so much. Tysip. Ryan Muncie always touches on subjects that are relatable to life in general. As a father of two young kids, it's always helpful to learn how to be a better version of myself. Uh, so thank you. Tysip. Shoot me an email, Ryan at naturalstacks.com. We'll get you, uh, some goodies as a thank you for your support. And for all you guys listening, uh, I'm incredibly grateful to uh, be a part of your life, be a part of your journey and help you find more ways to optimize yourself and, and grow and evolve. Um, that's what I'm here to do as well. Um, and finally share the OPP, you know, there, there's people in your life who, you know, will benefit from the things that we're talking about. Enjoy this stuff, uh, share it with them, whether it's an episode in specific or, um, you know, the, the podcast itself, uh, is a general thing. Get more people listening to this thing, get more people subscribed. That's how we help more and, and grow this movement. So, uh, thank you guys for being a part of this. And here's Chris, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for spending some time with us today. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. So right before we hit record, you said something that was so beautiful. And, and I think it, it hits the essence of what I want to capture with this episode of the OPP. And um, you know, paraphrasing, feel free to repeat this in your words if you want to. But you know, the, the concept of using science to figure out how we feed the world going forward is uh, a complex, complicated issue that, you know, we don't have all the answers to, uh, but we're, we're looking into it. Folks like yourself are, are doing a lot of research and trying to ask and answer those questions. I think that's a fair statement. It's over the last, well, 8 million, 8,000 years that we've been doing farming, We've constantly increased the productivity of the land, the amount, number of people we can feed using. And this is a continuation of that process. But every time you bring in new ways of doing things, there are questions you need to ask and answer about whether or not it's a good choice. Yeah. And I think one of the topics that I wanted to cover with you is the topic of, of farming. I think all of our listeners, uh, and you would probably agree with this, that the modern factory farming system that we have now is broken. There are numerous flaws in terms of uh, the quality of food that it produces and the impact that it has on the environment. Do you see what you guys are doing at Impossible Foods as one kind of a, one tine or one prong in a multi-prong approach to, sol to solving that? Um. I think I would start by saying that I think if you just look at the number of people who get fed nowadays and the number of calories they're producing, they're consuming, and just look at the things like uh, metrics of health, like the height of people in, in Asia and how much they've increased over the last 40 years and so, we, the farming industry is doing a miraculous job of feeding people. And over the last 40 years, there's been a huge increase in the number of calories and the quality of food provided to people. So we should not downplay that. I mean, there's been a huge benefit from farming practice over the last few years. Now, 
the when you talk about the intensification of farming about the factory farms about the fact that they are because they're so intensive that they have consequences on the environment it causes increased runoff of fertilizers etc into the water you get there's there's clearly some issues we need to do better at so i think what i think of when i think of what we're doing explicitly in impossible foods i think the key for us is to think that when you think about animal farming specifically animals are as the way we treat them in the modern food ecosystem mm-hmm. we are treating them as a technology to transform biomass core studies distilled dry grains uh, soy etc some grass some hay etc 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 alfalfa turn that stuff which has all the nutrients but is in a form factor we don't particularly want to eat their job then is to turn that into something delicious we then harvest that deliciousness and we use that as a key part of our food system and that's fine the only problem is is that they in terms of the amount of goodness that goes into a cow versus goes into the consumer's plate it's just really inefficient i think mm-hmm. it's about 3% of the protein we feed to a cow ends up being consumed by humans um about the same con- uh, ratio for just overall energy intakes um hugely less than 3% in terms of water and so just the inefficiency of that technological process of turning the proteins fats and sugars present in the crops produced by the uh, farmers into meat that is in a, a delicious form we want to take is really the cause of a lot of these environmental issues associated with intensive factory farming so the question we're asking really is can we come up with a better way to make delicious foods without using that technology which is fundamentally if you think and without using that technology and i think the way i tend to think about that is that there are almost no technologies that are key to human life that have not significantly changed since the stone age in the stone age basically we uh we actually went and hunted the cow uh rather than farming it but what farming cows started what 3 4000 bc mm-hmm. since that but there never since then the basic point has been take by bi- plant biomass feed it to cow eat the cow is the basic technology paradigm and that has not changed in that entire time frame there's been no application so and so that's really where we're seeing an opportunity here right well and, and just to uh put some numbers to what you're saying about the inefficiency of especially the the factory farming model um you know it, it takes over 900 gallons of water to produce a single pound of cheese it takes 660 gallons of water for a quarter pound hamburger uh, to get to your table Uh, the domestic use for uh, water is 5% compared to 55% for agriculture um you know so you know when we look at like environmental changes uh, things like taking shorter showers recycling other waste saving ideas would combine to save us 47 gallons a day uh and that's that's less than a tenth of you know the 660 gallons required for a quarter pound hamburger on your plate right. Uh, those are numbers from the the documentary Cowspiracy um right. and i uh for you guys listening i've got a a response to that um uh, that we'll post in the show notes you guys can read that blog uh but i feel like in that documentary they overlooked the idea uh, or the potential solution of moving from a factory farming model to a permaculture um grass-fed uh, regenerative farming model so for for me i think that on the farming side that is a solution um we know that doing that can provide the um the amount of food required to feed the world and and we'll get to what you guys are talking about with impossible foods as as a as another solution to provide uh, a different food uh but just to stick with that idea for for just a minute mm-hmm. um you know we know that we don't have a production problem we produce enough food already to feed the world what we have is a distribution problem Can you talk a little bit about that? Um I I'm I can't say that I'm an expert on the distribution problems in um uh, Africa. But 
it is very clear that, for example, if we're talking about products like meat and food, they need to be refrigerated in order to be transferred for any length of time. And so that requires a cold chain. Mm -hmm. In the West, we have a good system for refrigerated trucks, refrigerated warehouses, freezer warehouses for transporting food like meat, like vegetables, long distances, and they'll last. In Africa and China and India, those food chains don't exist, and it will take billions probably of investment to build those refrigerated warehouses and refrigerated trucks. And until those are developed, it will mean that this distribution problem will continue to happen. To some extent, I would challenge the, we do make enough food for everybody, but not necessarily in form factors that people want. There's plenty of protein and fat and things in the presence in the soy, in the corn, etc. But in terms of meat, which is the form factor people want to eat, there it doesn't look like there is there is the projections indicate that we'll need to produce 50% to 70% more meat over the next 40 years in order to meet the increasing demand coming from Asia, from Africa. Because as people get rich, the first thing you do when you get rich is to eat like rich people, which is the American diet. We're talking about eating meat. And so whilst there is plenty of intrinsic calories and protein out there, it's not obvious that there's enough capability to produce delicious meat products that people want. Okay. So let's talk about lab meats. What, what constitutes a lab meat uh, and, and you know, how do you guys go about creating the impossible foods burger that, you know, like you said, is, is in the form that people want to eat. So there's a couple of different streams of this particular approach. I mean, historically, I mean, there's been the fake meats made, but in Chinese restaurants have been around for a long, long time. And then, you know, and there's been this continuing approach to try and make better, better meat analogs. What are those made out of? Uh, typically they're soy and wheat. Um, and they're pretty good. Um, but that, we've and, and that's, uh, that's TVP, right? Like texturized yeah. vegetable proteins. And... That's one of the approaches you can do it with. Okay. Um, but what we found is that people don't, choose to eat those when people go to the barbecue there's a certain set of people who will say i were willing to sacrifice and to eat a vegetarian option versus having a delicious burger but most people don't choose to make that sacrifice so the question is how do we make a product that's delicious enough that people say that i want to eat that i don't want to eat the cow the piece of cow i want to eat this because it's more delicious mm -hmm. so that's really the touchstone it's not it's, it's so for any form of successful replacement for meat on the marketplace, it would need to be equivalently delicious to meat. And so that's really what we've been focusing on is how do we replicate the theater of cooking meat? How do so when it, it, it's soft, it hits the grill, it's got to sizzle, it's got to you know, change color, it's got to smoke, all the flavors that come off. Because a lot of that is what really drives the, the thrill of eating a burger, eating meat. If we can replace that, then it becomes not a sacrifice to eat this new this new form of product. So that was the challenge. And technically, the solution we've ended up really was, you know, a traditional engineering approach, reverse engineering meat and saying, why is meat so, so darn tasty? What is it about it that works so well? And a lot of it is what is these, this, this theater of the creating meat. And so we've done a lot of work to basically figure that out and looking at the basic science of how you create the flavor. And one of the things we really learned was that it is, there's the, the basic chemistry that enables meat to go from a relatively mild uh, flavor in something like a tartare through to the rich complex flavors of a cooked burger is, is chem, flavor chemistry is catalyzed during the presence of cooking while you're cooking the burger. And what we've done is basically say, okay, this is how it works. And then we've discovered that we can replicate that by using materials from plants. And that constitutes a mixture of simple nutrients like sugars, amino acids, nucleotides, vitamins, and uh, a heme protein. And the heme protein is 
basically what drives the flavor chemistry and makes the difference between a vegetable broth and a beef broth in terms of the flavor chemistry. And the same is true inside the animal. And it's also exactly the same flavor chemistry that happens inside beef. Uh, in beef, the protein is called myoglobin. It is what makes beef red um, and change color when it cooks. And we found a plant protein that does exactly the same job um, actually in soy root nodules. And we've, and that does exactly the same chemistry as happens in real, in the cow derived meat. And so therefore we get the same flavor profiles. And so because we're replicating all the natural transitions associated with meat, with the cow derived version, we get the same properties, we get the same excitement. And that's really our challenge is how do, yeah, as I say, how do we make something that's has the same excitement of eating, of, of cooking and eating as you get from the cow derived version. And you said the uh, the myoglobin, and I think what I've read from some other reports that I've seen about Impossible Foods Online is that you guys are, are using some sort of a genetically engineered heme uh, compound to, to produce uh, a hemoglobin uh, element to the burger. So actually, it's uh, the protein itself is identical to what's found in nature. Um, so this it turns out that every organism basically has to control oxygen inside its cells. And so it does that using this as protein of this type. We've, it, soup, soy root nodules are particularly rich in this protein, in a protein analog. Um, and for those who don't know, the root nodule of soy is the piece of the soybean that fixes nitrogen in the soil. So it takes the gaseous nitrogen from the atmosphere, fixes it as ammonia, which is then, which is why soybeans make a richer soil as they grow and do their work because they're leguminous so this protein is hugely abundant inside the root nodules of soy and there's more than enough there to replace all the heme protein you could ever need for meat the problem is is that it's all underground um, and so when we first started we were going to isolate the material directly from that material but then we did the analysis and we realized that in order to access it, we would have to dig up all the soy plants, disrupt all the soil, and fundamentally bring a whole lot of carbon into the atmosphere and disrupt a lot of soil ecosystems just to get access to this particular protein. And so we said, well, that's a really doesn't seem like a very good solution. So why not? Is there a better way to make that same protein? And then we realized that we could make that same protein in a yeast. Um, and, very, and so what we've done is basically we've created a yeast that's very, and then we grow it in a very similar way to the way you make you know, beer. Um, but using that same technology that you use to make beer, we can now make that protein and isolate it and put it into our food with much less environmental sustainability issues than if we were to take it directly from the natural source. So we made a conscious choice that it was a better solution to make this protein by fermentation it's a, than it would be to take it from the, from the underground natural source. But the protein itself is actually nature identical. It's exactly the same material, just from a different source. So how long does it take to create one burger or enough meat to make one burger? Um, well, that's, a that's really a function of factory size. Um, so right now we are in, we're scaling up production. We're in what, 36 restaurants, I think right now. They keep adding, so it's hard to keep track. Um, but as of probably next month, we're thinking, uh, we should, certainly by the end of this year, we will have a, the ability to make about a million pounds a month of meat. And that should enable us to reach restaurants pretty much across the US. Is the plan to stay in restaurants or to move to uh, grocery stores as well? Um, I think that's a timing issue. Um, it turns out that about half of the of the US ground beef is sold in restaurants and about half is sold in at home through retail. So, and I think the global markets are like 10, yeah, it's enormous. So we don't need to go to retail anytime soon. 
but it, at some point it will make a good choice. And that's a marketing choice decision. That's not mine. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think I remember reading that, that the meat industry uh, globally is uh, like $807 billion. And that was from 2013 or 2015, but right. it's, uh, it's big. Well, so, so when we're talking earlier about, you know, distribution uh, of food around the world, and we're talking about not having um, cold storage, cold transportation in places like Africa or Asia, things like that. Yeah. I mean, if that's the problem that you guys are trying to solve, how do you get the Impossible Burger or the Impossible Foods Burger? What, what, does it have a, a, a like a, a specific name? Um, um, so we, t we tend to call it the impossible, impossible meat. And then when it's cooked okay. into a burger format, it's called the impossible burger. But okay. if the chef makes a meatball, it's an impossible meatball. If they make a, I don't know, right. it would be an impossible taco. So, <laughs> so the impossible meat, how do, how do you guys uh, envision getting that to the places in the world that, you know, don't have cold transportation for, you know, actual meat from biomass? So right now, um, the, the good thing is our product, because it has the same raw meat, it's essentially raw meat. It has exactly the same transportation challenges. And so basically we just loop into the normal meat, uh, supply chain. So in the U S that works just fine. When we start talking about the cold chain in the third world, that's something that I think is currently outside of our scope. Um, once we've made enough, as we make enough material and generate market share and income, then we'll start having enough bandwidth to address some of those issues about how to get to the marketplace. But in, at least initially, we just, we're focusing on the US. And the main reason for that is one, it's the market we know best because we're based in the US. And secondarily, if you think about this problem about how to change people's perception of what constitutes success and in their diet. What a lot of people will tend to follow what the US eats. And so, you know, because people like to follow that successful metric. So but if by making the case in the US that the impossible burger, impossible meat and this plant derived meat is actually the aspirational product. So that it's the best meat you could ever get is this is this material rather than buy a cow it will then tend to drive people's behavior patterns to look for the best opportunity rather than what's available and so it's staying in the u.s and getting becoming a key part of the u.s eco food ecosystem is going to be important to feeding the world so we will need to go to those places so, so just to be clear, the, the impossible meat product does require refrigeration before cooking. Yes. I mean, it's a raw meat. It will spoil exactly the same way that the cow derived material will. We have some advantages in terms of the fact that our factories can be cleaner, but the intrinsic risk associated with raw food is identical. Uh, Okay. So, so we know some of the components of the burger are, you know, you, you explained how some of it was sort of prepared or, or produced similar to beer with the yeast formation. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other ingredients? How are they uh, farmed and, and produced? So the, the, the other ingredients are all standard commodity products that are found in regular chef's kitchens. Um, so we did a lot, it was one of those interesting journeys where we spent a lot of time deep in the weeds of the science. And then as we started move towards market, it became more and more simple as a, as a product. So the protein fraction of the burger, which is about 25, 27% of the mass of the burger is because proposed of wheat protein, potato protein, and some soy protein, the fat right now is coconut oil um, and then well, the rest most of the rest is water uh, but there are some other small ingredients like some vitamins sugars amino acids uh, there's a couple of uh, carbohydrates present to increase the handling capabilities and make it stick together properly because there's nothing worse than 
you know, a raw burger's got to hold together. So you've got to add a form into a bur- into a burger or into a meatball or what have you. So we need we need a few carbohydrates to stick it together and to improve the raw handling of the material. But that's essentially it. Okay. Now you mentioned those are mostly commodity type items. I mean, the the potato, wheat, soy are those all uh, conventionally farmed? Um, they are at present. We, there, there's no reason we couldn't do it using the organic. Uh, chain, but at present, I don't think that is something we've chosen to do. Um, I mean, it seems to me that that still falls under the, you know, fueling the factory farming system that we're trying to get away from. Well, I, I'm not. I think intensive farming is going to be required to feed feed nine to ten billion people in twenty years' time. The question is, what's an efficient way to achieve that? So when people talk to me about battery farming, typically they're talking about the animal piece of it. And we're avoiding, we're sidestepping that completely by going directly from the, the field of, by, of plants, the, the field full of plants directly to meat. So there is no factory farm there. We will be doing intensive farming to make those commodity crops because they will need to do that to generate enough material. But it goes directly from the plants to the meat. Now, right now, when we do our life cycle analysis, we are about, it takes about a 20th of the land to generate one of our burgers as it does to generate uh, the cow equivalent. And what, if you think about the opportunity of that, what it says is that every, the more meat that's made using this more efficient approach, the more land is then freed up to be used for other purposes, whether that be uh, uh, restoration of, envir- of biodiversity in- ecosystems, carbon remediation, uh, bioenergy crops. And yeah, there's a lot of different things you can do with that land once it's freed up from having to be used to produce cows. And so this is where I started off with the inefficiency of the animal as a way of making delicious food. If you can get a more efficient way to make delicious meat, you free up all the land and resources to achieve other things. And that enables you to come up with better systems throughout, there's better solutions throughout the rest of the food system. So would you guys be doing that with the land that's on your farms that's freed up? Or would you expect that to happen from the people who used to have factory farm animal facilities that would be essentially put out of business by moving to this model? So I, I, I see, uh, we see ourselves as being a technology company learning how to make food more efficiently from the raw materials that farmers produce. So I don't see us being farmers. I see us being people buying products that are produced by farmers to turn into, you know, meat and cheese, et cetera, et cetera. So I think I, my hope is that because we are using a more efficient system, there should be more margin to go around so the farmers can get more skin out of the game. If you look at the current industrial farming, certainly factory farming, the farmers really don't get a good deal out of this. I mean, you hear all those stories about the chicken farmers who are living on subsidy, you know, basically just not making it. Oh, yeah. If it wasn't government government subsidized, none of them would make money. I mean, our, our world government, I have the numbers here. I mean, we spend $486 billion a year to subsidize an industrial food and farming model um, that the UN estimates contributes 43 to 57% of uh, total man-made greenhouse gas emissions. So, I mean, clearly there's, there's some issues there. So, and, and so... When it, when it, if I go back to where we are, I mean, we know that animal food is an enormous part of the world uh, GDP. There is no industry on earth, especially large-scale industry, that can survive with a 3% efficiency of conversion of raw materials into products. I mean, that's just crazy. Right. And, and, and I mean, we... What, 99.9 or something crazy? Yeah. That's, that's what we should be aspiring to, is that all the value created by the farmers turns into human you know, products that humans can use and, it, and or ecosystem services or everything else. 
So that fundamental inefficiency of the animal as a technology is what's driving almost all these problems. If we could come up with a, if we could just go from a 3% efficient process to a 50% efficient process, that fees up, you know, that's 10x of, you need 10x less of it, all the inputs, whether that's water or land or whatever. You think how much we could do with that and how much value that unleashes for the farmers. Yeah. And, and we've had uh, regenerative polyculture farmers on the show before. We've had Joel Salton on twice. We've had the, the folks from Epic Bar uh, who are focusing on those practices. So if you guys listening haven't heard those episodes, go back and listen to those uh, because we do talk about, you know, from the farmer's standpoint, the solutions to increasing efficiency. Uh, both in terms of their output, but also in how that improves their profit margins, their ability to make a living and a livelihood, feeding the world the way we want to be fed with the food that we want in a way that supports uh, the environment, not only today, but in the future. So, um, you know, we'll we'll shift gears a little bit here, Chris, you guys, um, the Impossible Foods message, um, I've read a lot of articles recently um, before this. I I don't remember exactly where this one was published, but the, the claim was that, you know, that this impossible meat would change our diet within 10 years uh, and that it is better for us than meat. Uh, With my background in nutrition, I'm curious, you know, better for us, how? Um, Is that based on, you know, sort of uh, like that misconception that that red meat is bad for us? Uh, When you say better for us, what what do you guys mean? So health claims are always difficult because we're an outbred population and it's very hard to prove anything. Um, we've, we haven't been on the market long enough to prove any health benefits. So we're not claiming anything like that. What we can say is that, you know, the product contains no cholesterol. It contains no antibiotics. It contains, um, you know, that, so it doesn't contain things like that. But if you think about it, we control all the ingredients. So we can import knowingly design the product to make improvements in the nutritional value. So we've made a statement to ourselves, a promise to ourselves that we will never produce a product that isn't at least as nutritionally effective as the product we're designing it to replace. Um, and that, that's a difficult, it's difficult to know exactly what that means, but that's the standard we hold ourselves to. So when we think about bringing new raw materials and new processes into our product, the standards that we hold us up to are one, does it make the product more delicious? And then secondarily, does it make the product more nutritious? Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, does it make it more sustainable? Right. So, and so but, but if you think about it, when we get talk about science, over time, we will keep tweaking this. Mm-hmm. So in five years as a company, we have basically gone from a postulate that it was possible to create something that looked like meat and behaved like meat, et cetera, to a product that is now on the market and is meeting consumer demand. It's consumers' needs for a delicious meat product. So There's no reason it won't be better five years from now. And it I, I, better right. should be more nutritious, healthier, et cetera. Right. Exactly what that means will depend on what we discover, what science comes up, what we learn. Right. I mean, for, for me, from my perspective, when I eat meat, I'm not just eating skeletal muscle meat. I'm eating mm-hmm. organs. I'm eating bone broth. Um, you know, so I would, you know, for me, for, for a meat substitute to be as nutritious or more nutritious, it, it would certainly have to contain, you know, the CLA and the omega-3s that we see in grass-fed meats. I would want it to have the collagen that we get mm-hmm. from, you know, bone broth. I, I would want to make sure that, you know, it doesn't contain um, you know, if not GMOs, definitely not hormone disruptors that we know are in a lot of the um, industrial or conventionally farmed commodities like corn, soy, wheat. And so, and so that's, the, that's where we get to make knowing choices. Most of the world's omega-3s are made in algae, which, are then, which the fish then eat, which then end up in our diet through fish. We can buy those omega-3s directly or isolate them directly from the algae and then put those in to be as high or as low as we want to be. Um, so the you know, same is true with other nutrients and micronutrients. We can tune that to generate yeah, what we perceive to be a better product. So and the burger is really not the only 
I don't think of the burger as being the only meat. It's just mm-hmm. where we started. In order to prove this technology and get to market and get people to start thinking to have this discussion we're having now about the opportunity to make a more efficient food system, mm-hmm. um, we wanted to start with a product. And practically, burgers are easier to make than steak. <laughs> um, but we have to make steak. Steak is a key part of the food system. So we need to make that. Um, and the same is true for bone broth, all these different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no intrinsic reason we can't make them. We just haven't got to it yet. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that being said, where do you see the Impossible Foods movement uh, as a brand, as a company in, in five years, in 10 years? What would you like to see happening, not only with the company, but with your products? So I think... If we haven't made our burger, our impossible meat, categorically tastier than the cow-derived version, I would, I would consider that to be a, something. I would, I'd be unhappy with myself at that. Because after five years of the uh, test, you know, design, test, build, learn cycle that's common in all engineering, we should be making improvements. So we should have a fundamentally tastier product five years from now. The second piece I'd like to do is, you know, I, I want to be able to make steak at that point. I want to be able to make, you know, all the other products. So from a technology perspective, we'll be making a lot more different types of product. And then from a commercial perspective, obviously, every time we somebody chooses to buy Impossible Meat versus uh, the cow-derived version, they're saving enormous amounts of environmental damage. And so the more we sell, the more environmental benefits we're, we're causing, the more land we free up for other purposes, whatever. So from a commercial perspective, it's purely a matter of more. We, the more we sell, the more benefits we provide. I, I mean, I, I know I sort of asked you this earlier with, with how the land use would happen. Um, you know, what are some of those other benefits? What would that look like? How would you guys enforce or, or make sure that, that that's happening, that it's more than just lip service? Well, I don't think we can enforce anything, but by just the sheer fact of eating a more efficient meat, um, will you will, there will be downstream of processes. Every time you don't eat a cow, you've met, there is, you've not, that means that you don't need as many cows in the landscape. So the environmental damage associated with that cow is reduced. So there's huge, there's just straight up model, you know, improvements just by replacing the meat in terms of the larger statement about us controlling the marketplace. I don't think that's really our place. Our job is to say there is, there are better ways to farm. Here is an opportunity to rethink this system let us a society, let's discuss how to make farming better, to work better for the farmers, to make better food, to make the environment more sustainable so that we can feed the 9, 10 billion people we're going to have in a way that the planet that we can all live with because we'll still retain the resources of the natural ecosystems. That's a longer-term thing. I don't think that's something we can do as a single company, but what we can do is provide that leadership about the, the, and this discussion about the, of how do we make a better, more efficient way to feed people that is less environmentally damaging. And I just want to reiterate, I mean, when, when you say compared to cows uh, and, you know, when we're discussing the inefficiency and, you know, the resource consumption to produce a burger and a cow, I mean, that's, that's the factory farming, the conventional model. I mean, we know, like I said earlier in, in what we've cited in, in previous podcasts that, that the efficiency is much greater and the resource, um, uh, that, that spectrum is, is shortened and improved with regenerative polyculture farming. That helps to some extent, but the problem, but a cow still, as it's, primary mechanism turning biomass into meat, uh, its digestive system is that of an anaerobic digester. And that generates enormous amounts of methane. So there is no way to have a cow without the methane. Um, You can do some benefits to that by changing the food inputs, but fundamentally it will still produce a bunch of methane. And that fundamentally is is a problem for the greenhouse gases. The other part of that is in order for the cow, the 
the cow, by definition, its role as an organism is to generate more cows, not to generate meat. If we don't have to go through that step of making a cow, there is all the efficiencies associated with doing that. If we take our biomass directly from this polycultural farming, from the plants generated by those farms, and turn those directly into meat in a more efficient way, that is an even better solution than using the cow. So aside from uh, you know impossible meats, what are um, two or three other things that our listeners could implement uh, in their daily lives that would help us move in the direction of being able to feed more people and, and reduce our impact on the environment? I think that all the, all the mandates are pretty clear that a more plant-derived diet will be more sustainable and easier on the planet. That meat should be something that's eaten as a... I, I personally like how McGee's statement for, for how you should think about food is to eat everything in moderation, but not a lot of meat. That's probably the single most best way to think about food. And then the more, obviously the more you make local, you know, locally farm material, because even locally farm materials may not make sense because it, those farms can be less efficient than the industrialized farms in the Midwest where you can generate enormous amounts of food very efficiently. So it's a very complex issue, but I think the individual should really focus on um, eating the best they can eat for their health and not eat, if they just don't eat a lot of meat, they will be doing a lot of good for the environment. And then obviously not wasting food. I mean, what, it's what, 20% of food or something that the Americans buy gets wasted? It, it, I don't know the exact problem. number across the country, but uh, it, it's, it's huge. I know that, uh, I know it, just in the state of California, it's 6 million tons um, annually. Right. Uh, and the number was, uh, I think that was enough to fill the Staples Center 34 or 35 times over. Um, right. And that, that makes food the, the largest single source of waste just in the state of California. Um, and, and, you know, we use California as an example. It's, it's the largest right. state in the exactly. U.S. But, and that's just, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's, that's, if we can find a way to not throw that food away, um, you know, whether it's at the home, at the restaurant level, at the grocery store level, you know, there, there are, there are so many people in the U S that don't have food security, not to mention, you know, in, in places like Africa or Asia or, or other undeveloped places. So when we talk about, you know, distribution and, and getting food to people that, that don't have it, we're throwing away way more food than uh, most people realize. So uh, I would definitely agree with that. So I mean, the only thing that is guaranteed to win, because any form of production process, is, there is some environmental degradation associated with any production process because of the nature of entropy. So the only thing that is guaranteed to be an absolute win for the, for the environment is not to waste things, whether that's insulation in your, in your heat, in your housing, whether that's not, throwing, not buying more food and eating, ordering more food than you can eat, uh, recycling, you know, all these things make a difference and they all add up. So waste is the single simplest thing to eradicate that is a guaranteed win for any life cycle analysis. Uh, Chris, before we let you go, uh, two questions then, you know, number one, where can our listeners get more of you or learn more about impossible foods? So obviously there's a website, which is impossiblefoods.com. Uh, we do have a Twitter feed and a, and a Facebook page, etc. Right now, we're only available in 36 restaurants, uh, which are in the San Francisco Bay Area, Los Angeles area, New York, and Texas. Um, in a series of chains there, and you can find which them. Yeah. And so those are going well, but the anticip we anticipate rolling out to the rest of the country over the next few months. And really, I think what I'd like the listeners to do is start having this discussion about what is how we should think about food and what is and how we can efficiently make food and impossible foods is part of the solution but it's certainly not the entire solution but it's that discussion that's going to drive to a better food ecosystem um, and hopefully as the impossible burger becomes more available to people people will 
taste it, hopefully like it, and then they'll choose to buy it because it's a more delicious food product. We're not asking anybody to make any sacrifices or buy the material because it is more sustainable. We want people to buy it because it's delicious. And then by doing so, they will have, they will make environmental benefits, but that's not why they should buy it. We should buy it because they like it. Okay. And the final question, the one that every guest has to answer, we want to know your top three tips to live optimal. Ooh, top three tips to live optimally. Um, be happy. Um, we, we, we choose how we respond to external events. And if we choose to respond to those in a positive way, it enables us to be happy and being happy leads to a, pretty much everything else flows from that. Um, be nice to people. <laughs> uh, if, if we're all nicer to each other, again, that would make my, everybody's life better. And I think being nice to people also means being nice to the environment. And that means not wasting things. You know, be mindful about how you treat them, how you make your choices. You know, make choices that make the world a better place. And if we all, if we do, if we, if we, if we do all those three things, I think we'd all be much, it'd be much better. I love it. That's the last one's great. Yeah, that last one's great. I love it. Chris, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us and, and, and sharing you know, what you guys do uh, with us here on the OPP. For you guys listening, go to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to see the blog post for this along with uh, links and resources. We'll have the links to the Impossible Foods website and several of the articles where they've been featured on, on other sites and publications. And uh, make sure you guys go to um, iTunes, leave us a five-star review. Let us know how much you like the show. If we read your review on the air, we will hook you up with free natural stacks products. And finally, share the OPP with your friends and family, the people you know who uh, will benefit from and enjoy the things that we're talking about here. That's how we spread the message and, and get this out to more people. So thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next show. Chris, thank you so much. My pleasure.